Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. You're on radio station 3 Triple R 102.7. The show you are listening to for the next hour will be Radio Marinara, a show about all things wet and salty. Before we kick into the show, just want to give a special thanks to Tim Thorpe for keeping me company on my drive from Phillip Island this morning. It was quite wet and soggy and the music was very appropriate for it. I don't know if there's such a thing as a wet and soggy playlist. but He, he, play, he, played, um, he played Bob Dylan twice. He did. I thought Brian Wise had taken over his soul and entered the studio. <laughs> I wasn't sure what was happening there, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, we've got a massive show today. Oh, sorry, I didn't even say who I am. My name's Kate Mills. <laughs> and I'm Dr Beach. It's a pleasure to be back in the studio. With it's you, fun Dr. to be Beach. back in the studio with you, Kate. And we have Nerida panelling for us this morning. Thank you very much, Nerida. And it was Nerida's voice you heard first as we were trying to figure out the microphones. <laughs> And yeah, thanks to um, thanks for Tim for a wonderful show this morning, and of course thanks to Andrew for vital bits. Uh, we do huge show this morning. Yeah, so we're going to kick off with Triple R's own or Radio Marinara's own marine paleontologist Ben Francis Challey. He's going to join us after spending Friday in a hole. Friday in a hole, Friday in a quarry, and he wants to talk about Tassie Devils too, not too marine, but um, maybe something, yeah, maybe just a little something there about Tassie Devils. Yeah, I did ask him how he's going to make the link, and he reckons he's got a tenuous one there for me, so yeah. that's all right. It's it's in the news. It's it's worth talking about. Yeah. Then we're going to quickly cross over to Alady Compress and talk about spider crabs. Uh, spider crabs are back, apparently. Yeah, they've been seen when... People are saying out of season, and I guess that's what we want to talk to her about. Is it really out of season? Is it just a knowledge gap? Um, and talk to her about what she's learned. They've just released a pretty cool video on some of the work that they recently got funded to do. So I'm sure she's going to give that a plug and let people know where they can check that out. Excellent. And then we're going to cross to New South Wales and talk to Dr. Aaron Eggers. We had him on in March, late March. All things kelp, kelp restoration. Help the kelp Help is for the, the plight that's yeah. gone out. Yes, yeah, so we had a fascinating chat, chat about the Kelp Forest Alliance, an uh, um, organisation he'd started up himself while doing his PhD with the target of restoring and protecting 4 million hectares of kelp forest, which I did the sums and what was it? Kate's going to his notes now. I am going to my notes. 246,914 MCGs. Yes. <laughs> Because that's the only way people How in Melbourne. Yeah. Or, or Sydney Harbours. <laughs> Too many. Yes. No, no, Sydney no. Harbour is probably a better one. It might be a better one. And as, yes. li- as li- regular listeners to this show uh, will know, and indeed, even if you're not a regular listener, you'll know that, um, yeah, kelps are in trouble. They certainly are. And, and we're seeing that in spades in Australia. Wow, that sounds better. Yes. I just got tweaked. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, we have the mysterious... Jeff Bain. Yes. And wrap it up. It was, what did he say? Soundwave celebrates cephalopods in homage to big tentacles. I'm sure there's a sly sort of reference in there, Jeff. Jeff Maynard would tell us about a 1950s movie that starts in Melbourne, travels to Darwin, and includes a fight with a giant octopus. Cool. So you now know as much as we do about what Jeff's going to bring to the show. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. 
Have we got any news? Uh, a couple of news items. There's um, on um, on Thursday, Smart Arts, um, we're going to have an interview with, um, well, there will be, Richard Watts is going to be interviewing somebody called Gabrielle New, and she's going, I'm just going to give a little bit of a, a double spruik on Triple R, so she's going to be talking about this at length on Thursday. But just a, a heads up to you, well, particularly those who live down on the peninsula, there's going to be something called the Crone Walk. Um, this is walking together to support older women and our connection to the earth. Uh, this is part of the Mornington Peninsula Drift Festival. It's a pre, free public event. Um, so in association with Reclaim the Crone, which is an event which is going to be at the Mornington Theatre on Saturday night and Sunday night, um, that's what Gabriel will be talking about um, at length with um, with Richard on Thursday. Uh, so Gabriel New and the Space Between Performance Collective invite you to participate in walking together in reverence for Mother Earth, the wise old woman in the Crone Walk. And that Crone Walk is going to be... Um, at Rosebud, so I met at Rosebud Pier on Saturday, the April April the twenty second, eleven thirty. It is a free event, but you do have to register. So if you go reclaim the crone, one word, reclaim the crone, C R O N, uh, you will find that at the um, at the Drift Festival website. Uh, a little bit of science news: um, two papers have just appeared in the journal Nature, identifying the receptors that. Octopuses use on their suckers um, to taste things. And as we know, octopuses, and we've been hearing a lot more about octopuses from Jeff or later on the show, but maybe not too much hard science. Um, they have, um, yeah, people at Harvard um, and other universities in the United States have just um, identified, done a lot of genomics and crystallography and all this kind of stuff. They've identified in great detail what the proteins are which are on the receptors or which are on the suckers of, um, of octopuses and shown that a lot of them, um, are there, which are de- well, they are detecting greasy molecules, so not water soluble molecules. As you might, you know, oil and water don't mix. Um, so you'd be thinking, well, maybe you know, in an aqueous environment, in a watery environment, these receptors will be you know detecting things which are dissolved in the water. But no, when you think about it a, bit, a little bit more deeply, as it were, octopuses shove their hands with their, t- with their hands, their tentacles <laughs> into crevices and they start to feel things. So it's greasy molecules which would be sticking to surfaces, sticking to fish, st- sticking to other shellfish. So that kind of makes sense. And most interesting, well, also very interestingly in this, they also looked at squids and showed that the receptors on squids identify more water-soluble molecules. So squids are in the pelagic environment, so what they are detecting are fish and other stuff which are around them in the water environment as opposed to looking at surfaces or trying to touch surfaces. Anyway, two very interesting papers um, which are free, open access for you to go to um, or to find. On nature. It's fascinating because you think of octopus, you often see footage of them putting their tentacles out and grabbing people's hands. Um, and that's, I guess, that's their receptor. Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been known for a long time that the, the tentacles yeah. are covered in the suckers, around the rings of the suckers, around the edge of the suckers, around their circles. Um, there are lots of molecules there which have many different receptors on, like we do in our mouth and our tongue and our palate. Lots of different receptors, proteins, which will detect different. Um, different flavours, if you like, and so do octopuses. But these have now been identified and their evolution has been gone into in great detail um, and two very extensive papers um, in the journal Nature this week. So when they're touching you, they're basically just giving you a lick, in a sense. Yeah, they're, 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 they're tasting it. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're giving you a lick, Dad. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now, as you may or may not know, it's April amnesty at the moment. Um, sure is. This is the time of the year where we get people to... If they forgot to subscribe during Radiothon. Which... Or, if you, or if you've got a friend you know that listens to Marinara or listens to any other Sunday shows or listens to anything on the grid at 3RRR and they, you know, they're they always talking about it, but you know in the back of your mind they're probably not subscribing. Give them a little nudge. Yeah, and 
I want to say, if you do subscribe, um, please leave a message for the people in the show because we do read them all. Um, and I just wanted to read out one that we got during Radiothon here. Great show. Can't wait for Dr. Beach to return. He's the Barry White of the marine radio world. (laughs) (laughs) That's old. If and when you subscribe, it keeps coming up every year. (laughs) It keeps coming up every (laughs) year. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. That's what I'm going to do straight after this, go back into that, because we were bouncing around the Mm -hmm. studio today. We were and so was our next guest. So was Ben. We could see Ben out in, um, I was about to say YouTube land, but I think it's Skype land. Um, He's he's on the other end of the screen. Uh, Ben Francicelli, uh, our resident paleontologist, uh, marine paleontologist or general paleontologist. But Ben, how are you going? Good morning. I'm very good. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited for two segments and the segues that we can kind of cross over with uh, a whole bunch of different things. That's, what, what, so are we. We mentioned Tassie Tigers before. I'm not sure if we're going to get onto that, but let's see how we go. I hear that you've been out in a quarry during the week. I hope it didn't get too wet and sort of um, submerged. It was on the Friday, luckily, and it was one of the days where it wasn't so wet and it was quite nice, as a matter of fact. And um, we were looking for marine fossils that were dating back around 17 to 22 million years of age. And when you think of marine fossils, you don't think to go inland Victoria at all. You think to go to maybe the coastline where there's active erosion. But no, you go to this one specific spot and I can't listen as exactly where it is, unfortunately, because it's a bit of a secret. And uh, when you walk around, it's this bizarre scape everywhere covered with shark teeth, and you can find hundreds in a day. Wow. What what sort of shark teeth? Most of them uh, tend to be from an archaic ancestor of the great nurse shark. So a shark that's probably no longer than about three metres in length, these small, delicate, cusped teeth, long central blade going up. Um, some of them are from the ancestors of the Great White, and they can be quite large. So if you look at your index finger, for example, some of the teeth are bigger than that. And if you're really lucky, you can find the ancestor of the megalodon, Atodus chubatensis, in this place as well. It's very beautiful. Atodus chubatensis. Ben, we're getting um, interruptions. I'm wondering if we might... So- this, the audience, that's, um, listeners aren't going to mind if we do this. I wonder if we kill the video between you and us, and then we might get better audio sure. so we don't get things dropping out. Um, and, yeah, so that's just going to happen now, I think. So can you? are you still there? We've lost your image. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I'm fantastic. still here. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, I think it is. But it's a lot better now. Okay, so quarry, uh, lots of shark teeth, and um, some of them are ancestors, ancestors of grey nurse sharks. So is this something, is this a quarry that you've recently discovered, a quarry that you don't know about until, well, you didn't know about until recently? So this is a big surprise, finding all these uh, shark teeth? It's not, it's not too big of a surprise, no. What's really fascinating is that we just keep on going back and we keep on making these remarkable discoveries time and time again. So uh, last year in November, we went back and we found uh, some of the first evidence of this archaic baleen whale called Parieta balena. And it would have looked like any other normal baleen whale, but it was the first record of its kind anywhere on the continent. And it's just a single ear bone lying face down in the mud. It looks like absolutely nothing when you saw it until you actually went to go and pick it up. It was really cool. Ah, okay. Nice. 
Most of the time, a lot of the time when you're on this show, you're telling us about stuff that you've found in Bo Morris. And I know there are other things that you want to talk about, but I've got a question from one of our regular listeners, Kat, who lives up yes. in, um, in Drummond North. And for those of you who don't know Drummond North, it's just north of Drummond, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is just near Kyneton and Malmesbury. So, so big shout out to Kat this morning. Um, and Kat said, yeah, wonderful to hear about Bo Morris and all those fossils, but why Bo Morris? And I, th- I said to myself over a pizza with Kat the other night, I don't know the answer to that. Let's ask Ben on air. So what is so special about that Bo Morris region? Why do we see so many marine fossils from there? Yeah, so for, for all the listeners to be aware of, Morris is this amazing hub of fossils that date back roughly five to six million years of age. You can find whales and sharks and giant pseudotooth birds. And one of the reasons it's really it's like the Goldilocks effect. You get the right amount of geology. You get the active uplift of the erosional processes that are happening in that one single spot in the bay. We are very lucky to be in this space and time in this one single spot where these fossils are just pouring out from the strata, specifically from the bottom of the seafloor. So we can thank the very uh, important erosional uplift that's happening in that single spot. But there's a whole bunch of areas across the bay where we can find fossils. Not entirely sure why it is that uh, Bo Morris and Black Rock are so prevalent more than others. But, if, for example, Fossil Beach down in Wellington is very well known of for its fossils as well, uh, specifically its shells. But all along the surf coast, you can also find fossils there because of the active erosion that's taking place. So that's that's the real important key as well. Okay, so, so it's exposed. Those bits have been uplifted, as you said, and they've been exposed. So we're seeing those particular layers, which are so rich in fossils. Um, Kat, I hope that's, um, that's clear. It is to me. <laughs> <laughs> and Ben, you, I, I, there's a paper which came out um, recently, which tended to, which I think they sort of suggested that maybe Tasmanian tigers have been around until very recently, like just maybe 20 or 25 years ago. I understand you've got a bit of a comment about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do have a comment about it, and I, I love <laughs> so many comments about it, to be completely honest with you. I love thylacines. They are the symbol of extinction, and we can find their remains on the continents of mainland Australia up until about 2,800 years ago, because at that stage, uh, I mean, 20,000 years ago, Australia was this one gigantic landmass that included Papua New Guinea, Australia, and Tasmania. You could theoretically walk from Tasmania all the way up to Papua New Guinea, and that's where you can find Philistine remains or Tasmanian tiger remains. Um, but this paper basically purports that we, the last known individual, physical evidence of Tasmanian tigers went extinct. 1936, when the last individual, the endling, as it was called, died in a zoo in Hobart. But they suggest that maybe these uh, animals could have survived a lot longer by looking at anecdotal evidence from members of the public who may have seen them. There's apparently this one piece of evidence of of a ranger who saw what he thought was a thylacine in the 1980s that's thought to be semi reliable. But the paper states, in all of its gargantuan claims, that thylacines were probably around in the 1980s could still be around by the 2000s and there's a very very minute chance that thylacines are still alive somewhere in tasmania which i find incredibly hard to believe and, uh, if you've got claims like this these extraordinary claims what they really require though is extraordinary evidence and that's something that the paper is not backing up with so um, when I read things like this, it has, I have a tendency to be a little bit frustrated with it because you'd find something. You'd find scats. You'd find footprints. You'd find something out there. to say, 
yes, they were around up until this time. We have carbon dating technology that is very accurate to within a single pinpoint measure of time on this continent. And they don't go about doing that. I think it's just a little bit sloppy. Just a, just a, just a little bit rich. It, it, it sticks in the craw, doesn't it? Uh, uh, thanks, Ben. Um, it does. It's, it's really annoying when that happens. Yeah. But yeah, I, th- I just wanted to get that point out because I read so many papers all the time as a paleontologist. Yeah, it, it's important and for you to paleontologists un- unload on air about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ben, thank you very much. Always a delight to have you on the show um, and to tell us about all things paleontological. Um, My God, I've got a fat tongue this morning as well. Okay. Um, uh, Yeah, all about... It's a tongue twister. It's a tongue twister. Ben, um, yeah, from uh, Museums Victoria, of course. Um, Enjoy the rest of your week and we look forward to having you on in about a month's time. I'll see you all then. Ciao. Thanks, Ben. Ben Francicelli from Museum Victoria. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Oh, it's great to have Alady Compressed back on the phone. We had her on a lot last year talking about spider crabs, and now we've got her back to talk crab. How are you, Alady? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Oh, look, you are always welcome. Now, there's been some reports of spider crabs in the past month. We've actually had some come through on the text line, which if you're listening and you've got some, it is 0466981027. And I guess we've been led to believe or think that this only happens in winter, and it's, it's not quite winter yet. What's going on? No, so we actually know that spider crabs can come together in big groups outside of winter. The question is, what are we do? What are they doing? And the answer for now is that we don't know. So we we do think that <laughs> molting. <laughs> we do think that uh, molting. So when they're shedding their shells, that's a winter phenomenon. Um, but yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to be proven wrong if anyone has more information, and uh, it, because it would be very interesting to know if people are actually witnessing molting right now. Uh, it is early, and the temperature is still pretty high, but. 18 degrees, so I'm not sure that they're molting. I would think that they're not, but uh, but again, we have so little information about spider crabs that we really need, you know, people to be on board and let us know what they see. So it's this molting that is kind of, I guess, the key difference, I guess, that we're seeing. So it's like over winter, we know that they come together to molt, but it hasn't been observed outside of those times. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, so... When, like I'm seeing these photos come through and I guess it's pretty easy to tell if a crab has molted or not. And instead of me telling people, why don't you tell people what's the difference between a crab that's getting ready to shed its um, carapace or outside compared to one that has already done it? Yeah, recently. absolutely. So, so if people are lucky, they might actually see the whole process with the crabs sort of extracting themselves from from the shell. So it's pretty much like watching something being reborn really where where the crabs you know just just leave its old shell behind and just extract itself usually when they've just molted they're bright orange and their shells are really clean so there's no 
algae or sponges or anything like that growing on them. Um, so they usually stand out quite well um, against, you know, other crabs that might be duller in colour, sort of um, more brown. Um, and they, when they're molting, when they've just molted, they're quite, they're quite clumsy and they, they might not move all that much. They're sort of yeah. recovering for the whole process. Yeah, and I guess the other thing people can do is you don't have to be in the water to be able to help because if you start seeing all these molts actually wash up on the beach, that's really important information as well. So beach walkers around the bay, like keep an eye out and let us know. Now, the other thing reason we got you on is that you've actually put together a super cool video and everyone loves watching a video and videos are always great for radio. Uh, <laughs> how can people... Um, Basically, keep in touch with you, the work that you're doing, see this video that sort of highlights the research that has been done. How can people get their hands on that? Yep, so people can head over the um, our YouTube channel. So it's called Spider Crab Watch and look at the latest video that's been released that, um, yeah, gives a, uh, an update on the research we've been doing at Deakin University for both the citizen science that was led by me and the traditional um, science that's led by Danielle Dekanu. Um And so, yeah, on, in the comments in the video, there's also a link to sign up to the newsletter so people who are really interested in spider crabs and the research can sign up and get the latest news directly to their inbox. Elodie, that, 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 that the video, that footage is taken from a camera, which is where? Um, yeah, so they're not out in the bay just yet. So it was footage that was taken last winter um, and that was taken at, well, the, the spider crabs were seen at St. Leonard, so on the Bellarine Peninsula on Wollongong Country. Excellent. Um, yeah, fantastic work that you're doing there at Deakin University, looking at the spider crabs and keeping us up to date on all of that. We, um, yeah, we love getting those updates regularly here on Marinara. And we will no, no doubt be getting more updates over winter as they start to come in. Thank you for your time again, Elodie, and we'll catch you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You are back on 3RRR 102.7. You can listen to us on demand or even subscribe to the podcast as well. It's a good way for me to catch up when I'm not in the studio. Back in March, we had Dr. Aaron Eggers on to talk about the Kelp Forest Alliance and the Kelp Forest Challenge, which is to protect and restore 4 million hectares of kelp forests, or, as I mentioned at the start of the show, 246,914 MCGs. (laughs) We had so many questions to get through. We didn't get through them all, so we've invited him back. Welcome back, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me back. If only we were uh, as good at building stadiums as we were building help for us, we'd be direction. <laughs> yes, we do need to come up with an underwater sport that's just as popular as uh, football, don't we? Yes. We'll fill the sand. Yeah. Uh, look, so if... Listeners want to, they can jump on demand and listen to the show, which was back in March 26. But just to bring um, listeners up to speed, can you just give a quick recap of, like, the Kelp Forest Alliance, how that came about, and then what the Kelp Forest Challenge actually is? Absolutely. So the Kelp Forest Alliance is a, a global community of practice of anyone who works in a kelp forest, works near a kelp forest, or just cares about kelp and is looking to do something to protect or restore these ecosystems. And so we, we try to bring everybody together and get them working together more efficiently and creating new ideas that might happen when, say, a scientist meets a business person or an artist meets a community group and break down some barriers that have existed in the past. And then together, we, we've come 
together to create the Help Force Challenge, which is this idea of creating a shared vision for what we want Help Force to look like in the next 17 years over the year 2040. So we've come out and said we want to protect and restore 4 million hectares of kelp forest by 2040. We also want other groups to get involved as well. So if businesses can go nature positive and reduce their impact on the ocean and actually bring back biodiversity when they're working in the ocean, or can create art to popularize and communicate the importance of kelp forest, really lots of different creative ways that people can get involved and, and help the kelp. Yeah, and... That fantastic, succinct wrap-up. I'm glad I asked you to do it and didn't do it myself. But what I wanted to touch on is last time when we had you on, you mentioned like basically a lot of this came out of the research that you did during your PhD. And one of the things that sort of struck me is you said you had hundreds of phone calls. So I imagine there was quite a few emails out there, but you actually had conversations with a lot of people about the restoration work that they were doing. Were there any common themes like one you must have been exhausted talking so much but were there any common themes that occurred that sort of I guess have fed into the alliance and the challenge well I actually quite loved it I mean, <laughs> during COVID so it, it turned what was potentially a very isolating period into a very connected period where I just got to, to call these hundreds of people who deeply cared about their kelp forest and learn the approaches that they were taking and then barriers that they were taking. And I think one of the common themes that came up and really a lot of the inspiration for the Kelp Forest Alliance was this sort of sense of isolation and that these projects were, were trying really, really hard, but they didn't know who to turn to for advice or how to kind of get information that didn't exist in their local context or how to bring this issue to a higher level. So what we're trying to do with the Kelp Forest Alliance is that information more accessible for the people doing restoration and also create that sort of global movement or face or sort of identity to a kelp forest uh, to help these people and these organizations get attention uh, for the ecosystems that they care so much about. But a lot of times their neighbors don't or their residents across away from the ocean don't either. Yeah, and I guess I also wanted to touch on the the idea of restoration. So when it comes to protection, I guess people can sort of visualise what protection is and that idea of kind of, you know, leaving something alone, managing the impacts that might be causing around it. But the restoration side of it, particularly underwater, I think people sort of struggle to visualise what's happening. It's one thing to do it on land where you can picture people out planting trees. And um, with Calplot, how do you actually go about doing this? You have to get creative. And it it is, in many ways, a lot like underwater gardening. So you you can plant kelp onto the seafloor, but they grow on rocky reefs. So you can't just dig a hole and put them in like you would have a plant on them. You have to find some sort of creative way to attach the holdfast, which is kind of like the root of the kelp, onto the seafloor, and then it will naturally adhere or attach itself. Uh, But people have used glue, they've used mat, they've used sort of bolts and anchor points, ropes tied around reefs. Um, you know, we have floating bags that contain the, the blades, they're sort of like the leaves of kelp, contain the reproductive elements. And so they're actually able to, to reproduce when they're unattached. And so if they're in these floating bags, then the spores, or the seeds, if you will, will then float out of the bag and settle onto the sea floor. You can even have sort of long lines that have kelp growing on them, and then a similar approach. The kelp actually grows on the line, and that's not what you're interested in for the restoration purposes, but they provide the sort of parent stock or the source population 
um, that then settles onto the seafloor and grows into a new restored population. And then lastly, there are certain instances where pests are a problem. So you think about if you have caterpillars in your garden and they're chewing through your tomatoes, sear chins are the caterpillars for kelp forests. So there are these spiky herbivores that occur naturally in the ocean, but many times something gets thrown out of whack. They're, the predator is gone, so nothing eats the sea urchin anymore, and they explode in population. But the water gets warmer, so they move to a new area where they didn't live previously, and then they just boom, and they wipe out a kelp forest. So if you remove those, in some cases, that can be enough to actually remove, uh, restore the kelp forest itself. Um, Aaron, fantastic work. It's Dr. Beach here. Um, I was just thinking about that when you got to the sea urchins. Like, so the reasons that we're losing kelp on both the east coast and the west coast of Australia and down the southern coast as well um, is through climate change, so warming waters, but also in combination with these pests such as sea urchins. Um, so you can give them a helping hand against the sea urchins, but how do you, how do you deal with the, like the, the, the warming waters, the, the, the climate change effect, if you like? It's definitely the, the trickiest issue that we face, and the ocean is, is warming quite quickly, especially here in Australia. So there's, I guess, a certain calculus that you need to do if some areas are just going to be too warm into the future to support a kelp population. You might sort of shift your focus elsewhere, or you might have to maybe think about a similar species that has a higher thermal temperature tolerance that you could put back into that area. Or we're starting to think about these heat-tolerant kelp. So kelp are, are beautifully plastic or uh, adaptable. So the species Aclonia radiata here in Australia, or the golden kelp, lives all the way up from the border with Queensland to the southern point of Tasmania. And you think about the temperature gradient across that range, it's massive. So the species, when adapted, can survive in a huge variety of temperatures. So you might just think about finding those individuals or those populations that are adapted for the warmer temperatures and moving them or using them to restore in the areas that have been lost due to increased water temperature. Now, this project continues through to 2040, so we've got plenty of opportunities to keep getting you back on the show <laughs> to keep track of progress. And speaking of progress, if people want to check out what's going on, jump onto the Kelp Forest Alliance website, which is all one word, kelpforestalliance.com. And you do actually have a tracker for the progress where you're going with the pledges and then with your restorations as well. And I was interested to see South Korea is doing a huge amount of work in restoration. And I have plenty of questions around that and I want to keep on going, but listeners are going to have to go and find that out themselves. Um, people can also be involved too. How do they do that, Aaron? Just quickly. So if you hop on that, that same website, there's a map of all the restoration projects that we have mapped out around the world. And, and so you can start to contact your local restoration projects, see how you can get involved. There's a wonderful citizen science program called Brief Life Survey. They're involved in monitoring and reporting on the health of kelp forests and other marine habitats. Or you can just take the old feet on the pavement or, or vote with your feet. And, you know, politicians or policies that are supporting healthy oceans are going to be supporting healthy kelp forests. And we need to sort of shift into this mentality of a, a more sustainable ocean for, for everyone and everything. That's a fantastic note to end on. Look, Aaron, we will get you back on. I think this is going to be an ongoing relationship. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be around for at least 17 years, hopefully. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for your that time. Thank you well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll chat to you soon. Bye for now. Thanks, Aaron.
That was Dr. Aaron Agus. From the University of New South Wales. Yes, and the Kelp Forest Alliance director. Um, if you want to find out more, you can actually listen to an interview that was done on Uncommon Sense, which is usually Amy Mullen's show, but it was done by Judith Peppard. Um, and she had Associate Professor Adrian Verges, who's on the board of directors of the Kelp Forest Alliance, giving a longer form sort of um, interview about it. And she did go into the South Korea restoration. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. You sure are. I'm Dr Beach, and I'm joined by Cade Mills in the studio this morning. And before those announcements, we... um, we listened to Mollusk um, by that band. When thanks for Webs- Wes Webster, a regular listener who texted in to say that that song and album, indeed, the eponymous album uh, by Wayne, inspired the movie SpongeBob SquarePants. Of course, fun, it did. fun fact yeah. from Wes Webster and Radio Marinara. Um, sticking with the theme of mollusks, and as you know, we always like to have themes on this program. Um, we've got Jeff Maynard in the studio, and he's prepared a um, a molluscan. <laughs> <laughs> movie theme. I get to it. Octopus, oh, giant octopuses. We've, we've been talking about octopus yeah. suckers and all that. We are so sort of I heard all that. tight with themes on the show. You say octopuses, I say octopi. Or octopodi. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's not it is there. octopodo, isn't it? Something. Oh, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> who cares? Anyway. Look, moving on, I'm shifting the goalposts actually. My whole series this year was going to be about how female marine biologists are portrayed in old 1950s movies. And uh, that was a disaster. <laughs> you backed yourself into a corner there. Well, well, it, well it, it, that it was just, quite it's an just ugly a bit corner because <laughs> I, I was chatting with Bron and just said, look, this is not funny, the sexism and, yeah. and you know, your mild stuff was, you know, she needs a good spanking. So of stuff, you know, <laughs> some of the sexism and the whole thing, so I said, no, no, we're pulling the plug here, Brian, I can't, I can't make this funny. So, um, I was hunting around for another theme on Friday and... Um, you I, came up with tentacles. I came up with tentacles. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm going appealing. Well, I'm probably going to move the goalposts again because uh, it, it sort of gets worse, but uh, yeah, giant squid, giant octopi, and... Um, uh, and I found a 1950s movie um, with a huge rubber squid, um, and it's a comedy with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and Dorothy L'Amour. <laughs> yes, it's one of the Road, Road 2 movies. Yeah. They made a whole lot of Road oh. 2 movies, and uh, which were basically an hour and a half of Bob Hope doing jokes and Bing Crosby singing songs and Dorothy L'Amour wearing sort of skimpy outfits and um, that was pretty much it. But they'd be on the road to somewhere and on this one they're on the road to Bali, which doesn't really have a road. But um, they start, in, and I've got no idea why, they start in Melbourne, uh, even though the whole thing was filmed in California. They just trucked in a whole lot of sand and poured it over somewhere and called it a beach and stuck up a rubber palm tree. <laughs> but it starts in Melbourne, uh, an unrecognisable Melbourne in the 1950s. Um, and, and so to introduce it, you do this panning shot of Melbourne taken from the Royal Park, north of Melbourne, and it's a completely unrecognisable city 70 years ago. Anyway, let's have a listen to track one and see how we set up Melbourne. The Commonwealth of Australia, land of many frontiers, lone stepping stone across the vast Pacific to the mysterious brooding islands of the Malayan archipelago, last outpost of the art and culture of the Western world. Our story takes us to Melbourne, Melbourne, birthplace of Nellie Melba, the famous coloratura soprano, 
Australia's gift to American opera, appearing here as a token of appreciation for Melbourne's glorious gift are two distinguished concert artists steeped in the tradition of America's classical music. And so it, uh, that's how it opens with this panning shot of Melbourne and then you've got Bing Crosby and Bob Hope coming out doing their song and dance act and doing jokes and getting booed off the stage and all that sort of stuff. But pretty much all the Road 2 movies uh, involve Bob and Bing chasing, their word here, chasing dames, and that's what they do. And um, I, I thought you were getting off yeah, that you're thing. <laughs> I thought you were getting off that thing. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a bit hard to avoid. Um, anyway, they, they, they ch- and they're a bit, they seem a bit confused because um, I, I'm not quite sure about the morality of the whole thing, but they, they spend the, half the movie chasing dames, but once they've sort of either held their hand or kissed them, they somehow engage to them, so they have to spend the... <laughs> They have to spend the rest of the movie avoiding marrying them. <laughs> so Bob and Bing start in Melbourne and they're doing their song and dance act um, and then some big Melbourneian father with a cowboy hat on comes along with his, his cutesy 19-year-old daughter in a push-up bra and she's saying, they're the men that are going to marry me, Daddy. So Bob and Bing jump on the train and go to Darwin. So we're, we're going to pick it up now. But when they arrive in Darwin, there's an evil prince from one of the islands north of Australia who's looking for deep-sea divers. You must help me. I need sea divers again. Not a flaming chance, and you know it. Four <laughs> divers shipped out to your island already and never came back. They met with accidents. Accidents, my eye. We all know about Bogaten. Bogaten is a legend. Then why don't you get your own people to dive, if Bogaten is only a blooming legend? People of Batu are superstitious and still believe in witchcraft. It ain't no witchcraft done their men in. Look here, Prince. You couldn't get any diver in Australia to take on your job. Not for all the beer in Darwin. So I'm not quite sure how much beer there is in Darwin, but I'm pretty sure it's a fair bit. But um, anyway, Bob and Bing arrive in Darwin, escaping sort of the latest marriage intentions or whatever, and so they decide that's the only job available, and I think one of them dobs the other one in to do the job. I think it's Bob dobbing in Bing to do the job of deep-sea diver. Yes, sir, I'll have that treasure up in two shakes of a lamb's tail. And believe me, I know how to shake a lamb's tail. Oh, there's one little thing I must explain. You see, I'm not actually the diver. I'm the pump man. I have a friend who does the diving. Is your friend experienced? Oh, he's been underwater half his life. He used to be a lifeguard in a car wash. (laughs) Where is this island of yours, Prince? A few days' journey across the sea on the road to Bali. You will love that, too. It is an island paradise. Girls, huh? (laughs) Could it be a paradise without girls? So anyway, Bob, Bob and Bing go off to the on the road to, on the boat to Bali, I suppose you'd say, and they stop at an island where Dorothy Lamore is the princess of the island or whatever. But her father was Scottish, so she's sort of half Islander, half Scottish, and she's got the the evil cousins, the guy with the deep voice that's trying to find divers to send them down. Um, and both Bob and Bing fall in love with Dorothy Lamore, and. Um, Anyway, she she gets one of them aside and explains the real reason why her cousins actually got them there. Delightful place you have here, Princess. It'd be lovely just to lay around here and grow old. You and Harold will never grow old, unless you escape at once. Escape? 
My cousin, Ken Rock, is a scheming murderer. He has sent many men to their death in the sea. Years ago, my father set out for Bali to sell a chest of valuable jewels. The boat sank on a reef outside of our lagoon. Neither my father nor the jewels have ever been recovered. That's the treasure they want us to haul up out of the briny, huh? Many have tried, but none have succeeded. No wonder they offered us 50,000 guilders to get it. You must escape tonight. Down in the wreck of the boat lives Bogotan, a giant squid with bone-crushing tentacles. It means certain death to the diver. And um, the bone crushing tentacles are basically long rubbery things in Hollywood that come out and sort of tap the diver on the helmet and, um, and communicate. And it doesn't look all that um, um, uh, terrifying. But anyway, look, um, they, they get the treasure. They go off to another island. They can't decide which one of them is going to marry Dorothy Lamore. So they find an island where a woman's allowed to have more than one husband. So they both decide they will. <laughs> And the whole thing's a whole lot of... uh, uh, Look, if you're concerned about cultural appropriation, uh, look away now because the whole thing's just a series of sort of elaborate, colourful dances and um, songs and gags. And I forget what happens in the end. Uh, (laughs) But but they they escape the giant squid, which I think they should. I'm glad we got the squid in there amongst all the sexes. I I did get a squid in. I did get a squid in. Quite proud. I just wanted to give a quick thanks to Brent Brent, Brent, Ben Franticelli, Ality Compress, Aaron Eggers and Jeff Maynard, along with Nerida on the panel. If you didn't listen to Rachel last week doing a fill for us, please go back on demand and listen to her. Next week I'll be in with Fom. Rex is going to be in. We're going to be talking plastic literacy. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.